The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome Mr. Sanjay Rawal. He is the director of Food Chains, a documentary that sheds light on the lives of farm workers, largely in California and Florida, where so much of our winter produce supply comes from. Now, Mr. Rawal is a filmmaker and advocate for equality, and he actually works internationally to develop a wide variety of strategies to help nations improve the quality of life for marginalized workers. After watching the film Food Chains, I knew I wanted to have him on as a guest and to explore the challenges that farm workers face, despite truly historical work of trying to improve farm work and their farm worker lives, wages, and living conditions. So, Mr. Rawal, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be on your show, Melinda. Well, I wanted to ask you first, you know, I was reading your bio and I was reading about how you dedicated your life to focusing on equality. And the more I learn about food systems and injustice, the more I realize that we have to look at working on equality. And so I really appreciate that, especially through the food system lens. But then I also read that you have a graduate degree from the University of California, Berkeley, in molecular and cell biology and neurobiology. And I wondered how and why did you get from the lab to being behind a camera? It's a good question. I was a, a, a terrible student um, <laughs> and, frankly, wasn't the best at what I was studying and after I finished school, I moved to New York City, and I was encouraged by a, a really wonderful mentor of mine named Sri Chinmoy to do a lot of humanitarian work. So I, I'm really pivoted 180 degrees. But in many cases, it's really difficult to leave the past behind. I was raised by a tomato breeder. My dad's a scientist himself, and I grew up in the agricultural industry of California, and so even though my, my passion was really working overseas on humanitarian projects, I ended up doing a lot of work in agriculture overseas and ended up coming back to the U.S. and working in agriculture with him. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I developed a, a real passion for, for storytelling and helping other people tell their own stories, I should say. So I began getting involved in documentary film. So Food Chains, in essence, is uh, you know it's a confluence of a number of things that had happened to me and, and were happening to me. And it was an honor, really, to tell the story of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, this small group of tomato pickers from southern Florida that are radically changing the, the structure of the farm labor system. It's an absolutely inspiring story. And I have to tell you that I have been to Immokalee. And it was a humanity, a food justice kind of trip, and we visited their living quarters. And I'd like to think that if people knew the story behind their food, they would really take a stand and make a change. And that's why I see such great value in this film. So you grew up in California, and there's certainly been a large farm movement there, and you focus on leaders such as Cesar Chavez. So Cesar Chavez really made a change in fighting for farm worker rights and, of 
Of course, those included wage restrictions and the robbing of wages, substandard housing, exposure to pesticides in the fields, and even physical and sexual abuse. And it seems like Cesar Chavez made some real changes, but then something happened, and a lot of those positive changes were revoked. What happened historically? That's a great question. You know, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta made some tremendous progress, as did Valdemar Velasquez from Flock uh, in the Carolinas. And in the 60s and 70s, the, the union model was working in agriculture, despite the fact that farm workers are incredibly hard to organize because they're not limited to one specific geographic location. They're always traveling with the harvest. That said, the, the UFW and other unions were able to create historic alliances or contracts with farmers to increase the wages of workers and to better the conditions. But something curious began happening in the 80s. The supermarket industry began mushrooming almost out of control. And companies that you know had seven or ten stores under their control ended up having 600, 700, 1,000 stores under their control. The rise of the supermarket industry drastically changed the balance of power. In the past, farmers had a number of different places they could sell their products to, and they could usually get a price that helped them make ends meet. But with the consolidation of the grocery industry, there were many fewer places that farms could sell to, and that created tremendous pressure. The grocery stores eventually began dictating the entire food system all the way down to the prices that farmers could charge for goods. Now, farmers, in addition to dealing with multi-billion dollar grocery stores like Walmart or Safeway or Kroger or Publix, they're dealing with Monsanto and Dow and Bayer for their pesticides and their seeds. And with John Deere, for example, for their machinery, they can't negotiate with any of those three types of companies. So the only place where they could really ensure that they were able to make ends meet was by reducing or keeping the salaries of farm workers stagnant. So a lot of the work that Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta did in terms of focusing on farmers no longer really work because farmers are now just as pressed as anyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I thought it was interesting to see You've got some great historical footage of farm workers, what they looked like historically, and then how that has changed over the years. So traditionally, farm workers had been African-Americans here in this country, and then that shifted to Hispanic workers. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that shift in ethnic minorities happened. That's a great question. You know, a lot of people now look at farm labor as an immigration issue. Yeah. It's really much more than that. It's a human rights issue. Apart from the first Thanksgiving we've had in this country, from the second Thanksgiving on, we began treating laborers almost as slaves. The the first Thanksgiving was all happy-go-lucky. The settlers were very happy to get the help of the Native Americans. But by 1621, year two, they tried to conscript those Native Americans to be their slaves. And in order to meet the demand for cash crops, as everyone knows, we brought slaves from Africa. With the Emancipation Proclamation, the workers in the South were no longer slaves, but they were still predominantly African-American. And on the West Coast, as California began to develop in the mid to late 1800s, the successive wave of immigrants that were building the railroad tracks, the Chinese, for example, began populating the, the, the fields. And in the early 1900s, 
the state of California and agribusiness began importing Mexicans from northern Mexico to work in the fields. But it wasn't until 1994, um, NAFTA, that we began to see a majority shift from documented or U.S. citizens working in the field, whether they were Chinese, Japanese, Mexican, or African-American. It wasn't until NAFTA was passed that we started seeing a big flood of undocumented workers. So this idea of Latinos being the majority labor force, you know, wasn't really a reality for the first couple of hundred years of the existence of America. And the idea of having a, a largely undocumented labor force in farm labor wasn't really a reality until the late 90s in actuality. Yeah. I think about some of the trade issues that we're facing today. I mean, what a shame with NAFTA. And I, I don't want to leave that subject quite yet because I, I wonder, had anyone considered the unintended consequences of NAFTA or were those consequences considered and were they really part of the whole plan? You know, that's a, a point really worth discussing. I mean, there are so many unintended consequences from NAFTA. But from what I understand, the decimation of the agricultural industry in Mexico was really not predicted. I mean, you had, you had millions of small peasant farmers growing things like coffee, growing corn for livestock. And the Mexican government expected that with NAFTA, that, that class of people would end up graduating to more lower middle class or middle class jobs like working in factories. So they set up a number of factories along the U.S.-Mexico border. But in 1997, 1998, there was a huge market crash in Asia. And all of a sudden, it became much cheaper to relocate those factories from Mexico to Asia. So you had, number one, the influx of a lot of cheap subsidized goods, like corn, into Mexico that really put a lot of farmers out of business. But those farmers initially took up jobs in factories, and those factories disappeared. So we see between 1994 and 2010, we saw a tripling in the foreign-born population in the United States, from 4 million to 13 million. And that was directly as a result of NAFTA. And I don't think anybody understood that NAFTA would result in a mass migration. Right. And I realize that you don't bring this up in the film, but it seems like when we're having a discussion about the film, we have to raise the issue of TPP and the trans-Pacific trade pacts that we're looking at and what that's going to do with our relationships with food and goods coming from a much uh, more global universe. One of the things that people never really take into account is the effect of these trade policies on workers. One of the things that we show in food chains and we uncovered is the prevalence of modern-day slavery in the United States. Um, The fact that workers, you know, thousands, if not more workers, not just undocumented workers, have been found working under conditions of debt bondage, meaning that they're not paid until a certain debt is paid off. In the most egregious cases, some workers have been locked up in the back of U-Haul trucks, shackled up at night, and brought to the fields to work. We traditionally think of human trafficking just being, for example, in the sex industry, but very much alive in the farm labor industry. At the same time, we see a a much higher prevalence of sexual harassment um, of women farm workers than we do of women workers in any other sector. That's kind of because the rights of workers are never really considered in the policies, the large-scale agricultural or trade policies. There was a great series of articles in in the L.A. Times in December about the conditions of workers in Mexico proper, and they're really barbaric. 
at the same time, you know, those workers are producing peppers, tomatoes, cucumbers, lettuce, other fruits, avocados that people are feeding to their children in America. And I feel like that's the ramification and that's that's the hidden side of these large trade policies. Mm -hmm. They favor corporations. They might even favor consumers in the United States, but there is an expense. And the expense is the workers that produce those goods. Mm-hmm. I wonder, and this issue is brought up in the film, is like, how do we get to a place where we allow ourselves to dehumanize another population? Did any of you discuss this, you know, when you're getting, when you're finished at the end of the day filming and you, you sit down to relax and you're thinking, my goodness, this is right in front of us, but how is it that we can ignore the mistreatment of so many people? You know, again, that's a, that's a great question, and I, I think it's it's a it's a disease in America. We we look at all the issues of inequality, but they affect people of color much more greatly than they do Caucasians. And that's not saying that it's it's one group's fault or not. But there was a study done recently looking at the average net worth of a Caucasian family in America, and of course, it's average. It's, it's about two hundred sixty-five thousand dollars the average net worth of an African-American family is less than $30,000. That's an, it's a huge discrepancy. And over and over and over in our history, we see that the people that become disenfranchised or left behind are, are generally African-Americans or Latinos or other ethnic minorities. At the same time, you know, when we look at the situation in farm labor, it's something that we can solve and we don't need people to have a change in mindset. Our main character is the CIW. They were asking large companies like Walmart, uh, Taco Bell, McDonald's, for those companies just to pay an extra one penny per pound. That extra penny would double the wages of workers and take them out of poverty. At the same time, the CIW were also asking these large buyers to stop buying from farms that have had human rights violations. So the situation is very simple to solve. It's economic. It's not necessarily societal. You know, we we calculated a back-of-the-envelope calculation that if a family of four was to subsidize the doubling of wages of all farm workers in this country, they would have to pay an extra $68 per year for their food. $68 per year, that's a dollar and change per week. That's nothing. I mean, if somebody wanted to buy only organic one week as opposed to conventional, they might pay $68 in a single week for their family of four to eat organic. Labor is a very small percentage of the overall cost. And to make a difference in the life of a laborer will cost us as consumers really nothing. Exactly. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Mr. Sanjay Rawal. He is the director of Food Chains, a documentary film that sheds light on the lives of farm workers. Sanjay, you focused largely on two populations of farm workers. You looked at the grape growers in California in this wealthy, exclusive area, the Napa Valley, where it's so expensive to live there that the farm workers can't. And then you also focused, as you say, on the coalition of Immokalee workers in Immokalee, Florida, which interestingly is maybe 15 minutes away from one of the richest counties in the state of Florida, Naples, Florida. So what I'd like to do is just ask you to describe a little bit about some of the problems that you see in these communities of farm workers, largely the fact that they really can't afford housing in California, 
I guess they can afford housing in Florida, but the housing conditions are horrific. Let's talk a little bit about how the farm workers live. In many farm worker communities in this country, farm workers wake up really, really early in the morning. They'll be ready to work by 6 or 6.30, in some cases much, much, much earlier. They'll usually travel, in, in many cases, to a parking lot to, to wait, sometimes for two or three hours for a bus to pick them up. Um, they can be driven anywhere from 10 miles to 100 miles to the fields. And during that period, they're not being paid. In the fields, they're not paid usually by the hour. They're paid by how much they produce. Now, the general kind of argument is that, oh, this will will help farm workers earn more money. It's like the harder you work, the more money you get. It's draconian in the sense that there's no other industry in America that pays people by their productivity. It's like in a restaurant, a chef isn't paid by the number of courses he makes or by the number of steaks he or she makes. When the production is increased or when the incentive for earning is really tied to the number of pieces you pick per day, people can really wear themselves out. So the work is incredibly difficult. Obviously, it's done outdoors many times in very hot weather. There's bees, there's wasps, there's snakes in Florida, there's alligators. And all of this sounds kind of funny, cartoonish, but it's all very much a reality. In many cases, the farm workers are pushed so hard that they don't have time for breaks. They don't have time for water. They don't have time to take bathroom breaks. At the same time, being so isolated, many times women are in very uncomfortable positions. And if you go to a field and you see the, uh, the the women picking, they often are picking side by side with their brothers or with their husband just to provide some type of physical protection against harassment. So the, the, the conditions of farm workers in this country are abysmal. But worse than that, they're, they're paid incredibly poorly. Now, farm workers on the whole live paycheck to paycheck. And when you're that desperately poor, the decisions you have to make when you're abused are, number one, should I put up with this so that I can feed my children or should I try to complain? The issue with the, with the latter is that even if they do complain, there are very few ways for them to get justice. The farm workers are really between a rock and a hard place. But our, our main characters, the coalition of Immokalee workers, have changed this. They've transformed the fields of southern Florida, which were once deemed by the U.S. government as ground zero for modern-day slavery. And this is as late as 2010. Um, There was a preponderance of trafficking and slavery in the fields in Florida. They have transformed this epicenter for modern-day slavery into an area that's probably the most progressive place to work in agriculture in the United States. And that's because, for the first time, workers have a voice. And we see across the nation when there are problems in fields, it's because workers don't have legitimate ways to complain And there are no retributions for people that treat these workers poorly. Yes, it's a very inspiring story. And what I loved so much about it was this connection that we as the viewer of the consumer of the grapes or the tomatoes could say, wait a second, I have an opportunity to help work alongside these workers in that I can go to the supermarket and I I can raise an issue. I can write a letter to the editor in a way, there's public shaming where you say, hey, Publix, you know, the largest supermarket chain in Florida, certainly, why aren't you paying the workers just a penny more per pound? And in fact, the film, I don't want to be a spoiler, but the film does follow a hunger strike. And I was really appalled that Publix refused to speak to the workers. 
why won't publics at least speak to the workers? Why can they not see their huge income shared just a teeny tiny amount with the workers to improve the plight of their lives? The story, as you mentioned, really follows the coalition of Immokalee workers, their fight against a particular retailer in southern Florida called Publix. Publix has over a 1,000 stores. They're as big as almost any other retailer in this country, but they're really only based in Florida. And the CIW have been able to, to change the minds of companies as large as Walmart, but for some reason, their hometown supermarket, Publix, that knows the issues in the fields, that have known about the modern-day slavery, the rape, the harassment, the wage theft, Publix refuses to support their program. Publix refuses to pay an extra penny per pound. And it's kind of mind-boggling because Publix in Florida is known as a great company to work for. They treat their own employees really, really well. But at the same time, they refuse to recognize the humanity of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. And it's not really just an attitude that Publix has. Safeway has that attitude. Kroger has that attitude. It's something that we see within grocery stores all around the United States. People think of grocery stores as nice little neighborhood institutions, but the fact of the matter is they're multi-billion dollar juggernauts. Safeway, for example, which is really only located on the West Coast, there's little Safeways popping up in, in D.C. and in other places. Safeway generated more than $40 billion in gross revenue last year. Google only generated in the mid-30s. Kroger generated more gross revenue than Microsoft plus Google combined. Walmart's grocery division had twice as much gross revenue as Apple computers. And people argue that the grocery sector isn't as profitable, but the grocery sector has a tremendous stranglehold over the economics of the entire agricultural system and control it. And they're making hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars a year in profits. Publix is making about $2 billion a year in profits, and yet they refuse to ultimately double the wages of all these workers, which would cost them less than about a million dollars a year. I, I think it's just the attitude of corporate America, not recognizing the fact that their profits are made off the backs of millions upon millions of low-wage workers. Mm-hmm. Like you, I find the exploitation of human beings to be disgusting. And I'm sure our listeners, uh, if not through this interview alone, but certainly by watching your excellent film, hopefully will come to the same conclusion. So my next question is, what can we do as listeners, as consumers? I mean, personally, I will not buy a tomato at the supermarket. I don't want to buy food that comes from the hands of people who have suffered. And I can wait till July when tomatoes are ripe at my own farmer's market. But how do I reach all of those people who are shopping in public supermarkets or Safeways or Kroger's? How do we reach them to do the right thing? That, that's a great question. So, the, you know, the, the thing is that even produce that we buy at farmer's markets don't have a guarantee of fair labor. Mm-hmm. The people that pick the food at small farms are really the same people that pick the food at large farms. The workers travel from place to place to place. That said, small farms usually have a much better consciousness and are much more conscious of the issues. But we need to begin as consumers, no matter where we shop, no matter where we eat, by asking questions. Movements don't begin with answers. When the organic movement began in the 80s in the United States in kind of mainstream America, 
produce didn't show up overnight in stores. People asked grocers for organic produce. They asked grocers if those grocers knew the conditions under which that produce was grown. And gradually, the markets shifted. Now, when we go to a restaurant, when we go to a grocery store, when we go to a farmer's market, we need to ask those purveyors if their labor was paid a fair wage. And chances are they they won't know. But the more people that ask, the more the market will realize there's demand for fair labor food. That said, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers and their tomatoes are available in 13 of the largest retailers in America, from almost every fast food restaurant to Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, and now Walmart and Fresh Market. So there are places that do support fair labor. Secondly, and this sounds very selfish, but there's a practical application, so many of us have not seen what it looks like for a a farm worker. We haven't seen how they live. We haven't seen what it's like in the field to harvest. So I would would recommend, you know, again, this sounds very selfish, but I think it'll help uh, for people to actually see Food Chains, which is available on DVD on Amazon. It's going to be available on Netflix. It's available on iTunes right now, and it's available to stream on Amazon Prime as well. So if people see the movie, they'll understand what the movement is about. And then we encourage people to go to our website, foodchainsfilm.com, and to see all of the things that they can do to make a difference. It's a little bit frustrating because we're at the beginning of this movement again. The, the UFW did so much in the 70s, but we find that in many cases we're back at square one because the agricultural system has changed. But there is hope to change it and to change it very quickly and that will come from each and every consumer in this country beginning to ask the right questions. Mm-hmm. Well, we just have a minute left. Is there anything that you want to add that I haven't asked? Firstly, I want to thank you. Your show was fantastic. I know that all of your listeners really appreciate the time and effort you put into each topic and the consciousness you bring to a lot of these issues. So, As a filmmaker and as a food justice advocate, I kind of stand in awe of your work, and I hope to be of service in any way I can be. Well, I think we all have to work together, and the fact that you've got this film available, it allows me to interview you to tell your story and the story of the farm workers, and I love that the film is available through such easily accessible routes. I, for one, love to have little community screenings, so if you have a book club, why not change that to a film club one night, watch the film together, and have a discussion? But I do think that these kinds of documentary films are at the heart of grassroots movement. So my hat is tipped to you, of course. And I, I wonder, has President Obama seen the film? You know, I don't know if President Obama has, but Secretary Kerry recently showed five minutes of it at the White House when he honored our main characters, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, with an anti-trafficking prize. And President Clinton and, and Secretary Clinton, and you know, maybe future President Clinton, both because of the, the film and their knowledge of the CIW, gave them a major prize last September. We held a screening in Sacramento for a lot of legislators in California, the number one agricultural state in the country, and we're hoping to do something in Washington, D.C. You know, just as a last point, the Department of Defense and the USDA buy millions of pounds of tomatoes, for example, which are served to troops and served to students. But they haven't joined Walmart. They haven't joined Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, McDonald's, Taco Bell in committing to buying only fair food tomatoes. So there's a lot of things that we need to do in Washington, too. Well, I want to thank you so much, Mr. Sanjay Rawal, for your terrific film, Food Chains. 
the most important, I think, documentary we can watch this year to truly understand where our food comes from and under what kind of conditions is it produced. And then let's use our collective voices to work for justice. In closing, I want to thank Mr. Rawal for being my guest, and I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much again, Sanjay, for this truly important work. Thank you very much, Melinda.